Welcome to Commune. This is Jeff Krasnow. Our mission is to spread the ideas and practices of the world's greatest teachers. We do that through online courses, a weekly newsletter, and this podcast. On the show, I excavate perennial spiritual questions like what is consciousness? What is the nature of reality? How do we live with purpose? Reality is infinite. We experience a narrow bandwidth of it unless we transcend our senses through meditation. We delve into practices and modalities that can heal trauma and help us thrive. Mastering the art and the science of forgiveness is necessary to move through life. A miracle is a shift in perception from fear to love. We explore the spiritual traditions that help us acknowledge that we are all connected by a power greater than us. We are all indeed individuals, yet we need to find collective and communal solutions. We build a sturdy bridge between personal wellness and societal well-being. It's only when you get people who are pursuing their dreams, living their truth, and feeling good that we can actually move the needle of society forward. To learn about our courses, our community, and everything we do, visit us at onecommune.com. Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasno. Okay, today on the show, I welcome Jason Robel. Jason is the first plant-based chef with a primetime television series focused on longevity, how to live to 100, which has taught millions of people how to prepare delicious, nutrient-dense vegan meals at home. He's also the author of the book Eternity, a comprehensive recipe and lifestyle book that explains which foods contain active ingredients to support health and long life. Jason is also the survivor of clinical depression. In this episode, Jason walks us through how he went from standing in his kitchen, planning his own suicide, to using that same kitchen to create the vibrant health he enjoys today. We discuss the various tests that are available such that you can better understand your genetic predispositions and underlying health. We get into some basic neuroscience and how chemical messengers, known as neurotransmitters, regulate mood. We explore the nutritional building blocks of these messengers, essentially what you need to eat to positively impact your mental health. So if you're interested in the connection between mental health and nutrition, then be sure to check out Jason's commune course titled Good Mood food by signing up for a free 14-day membership trial. You'll also access functional and integrative medicine-based programs with teachers like Dr. Mark Hyman, Dr. Zach Bush, Dr. Mary Pardee, and others on topics such as brain health, immunity, hormone balancing, Ayurveda, and nutrition. Just go to onecommune.com slash trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. My mom actually is old school. She prints out the reviews and puts them on her fridge. The good ones anyways. As you will hear, Jason's story is one of the transformative magic of holistic nutrition. It is inspiring. 
entertaining and a light in the dark to so many who struggle with depression. So without further delay, I present to you, Jason Robel. Okay, my friend, Jason Robel, welcome back to the Commune Podcast. Great to be with you as always. It's always good to see you, Jeff, you know. It's funny, you know, we were hanging out a, a good amount, um, you know, when Wanderlust was percolating and uh, you were on the road with that road show uh, a bit. And, um, and then we collaborated on a course uh, right at the beginning of Commune. In fact, I think it was the second course that we may have filmed right after Marianne Williamson. And it was called and remains called good mood food. And so I had an opportunity to revisit that over the last couple of weeks. And I've got to say, it's just really incredible. All of the things that you were delving into and talking about that are, have now come into like fashion around longevity and 5-HTP and neurotransmitters and brain health. And, um, you know, I feel um, like I'm almost catching up to where you were um, many, many years ago. And I think the rest of the world is too. And, you know, you were really on that cutting edge um, talking about longevity and epinutrients and, um, and all these things. So it's been just a joy for me to kind of delve back into to some of that wisdom that you've been sharing for so long. Well, I appreciate that. So, yeah, I'm excited to probe some of the concepts that you talk about in that course. And, um, of course we'll digress appropriately, uh, but this relationship between food and mood has come to the fore uh, for me. And really, I think this conversation goes well beyond just mood or a temporary state of mind and really involves uh, mental conditions like depression or ADD, ADHD, OCD, or even neurodegenerative diseases that are cresting right now, like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, et cetera. And at the base of this conversation is food and food as containers for the nutritional building blocks that impact our biochemistry and how our biochemistry then impacts our neurology. So I'm excited for you and whatever cats you might have to, uh, around to help <laughs> untangle this ball of yarn. <laughs> And, uh, but before, uh, you know, we can get geek out on the science, um, I think it's also important to scaffold the conversation in some of your biography, um, because obviously you're, you're a well-known vegan chef and author and TV host. And in my time knowing you, I've only known you to be effusive and upbeat and someone who might spontaneously interrupt a podcast and sting a, sing a Stevie Wonder song. <laughs> <laughs> Which has happened. <laughs> it could happen. Um, but this wasn't always the, your default condition. Um, and so maybe you could share some of your personal story um, and how 
you came to food as a solution to help address some of your depression? It's an interesting journey because if I look back on um, my food journey through the course of my life, uh, I was always the kid who was who was in the kitchen with mom and grandma wanting to learn the alchemy, the art of food preparation. And uh, my love for food initially was just as an artist. I wanted to see how mom and grandma were, you know, how, well, how do you make fajitas? How do you make a stroganoff? What, you know, as a kid, I'm just seeing them bring these magical creations just from the kitchen. I'm like, I need to know what's going on in there. What are they, what is this wizardry? What is this sorcery? So the love for food for me just really started as this desire to understand the alchemy and the art of food creation. And I went to culinary school in 2005 and decided to see if I could actually become great at this art. Not just, you know, not there's anything wrong with throwing a bowl of macaroni and cheese and broccoli together, but I wanted to figure out how, how I could really challenge myself with this art form. And after I think about eight years into my career, no, it was longer than that. It was maybe about nine years. Um, I, you know, got my TV series on the cooking channel and was kind of wrapped up in that whole bombastic world of being on television. And, and you mentioned going on tour and having books. And um, I was hit with some of the most severe depression of my life during that time. It was such an interesting moment to be experiencing this this success, career success that I had dreamed of for so many years. And and I think there's this there's this expectation in society that when we get everything we dreamed of, you know, and we we reach these personal mountaintops that were things that were so far off. It's like, I, I can't, you're in this moment of thinking, I can't believe this is actually happening. I'm living in this reality I dreamed of. And yet in that same container of reality, uh, I'm thinking about killing myself. I'm, I'm, I'm so brutally depressed. Why? Because the, the, the societal sort of promise is just, just get to seven figures, just get enough fame, just get enough followers on Instagram, just get enough people loving you and approving of you and validating your existence and your art. And that'll be it. You'll have reached the holy grail, right? Of self-realization. So it was a huge wake-up call for me because I'm, I'm freaking out thinking I have all these things I've ever wanted. Why do I feel so bad? Why do I want to just not be here anymore? And that really led me, Jeff, to this, this moment of, um, well, I need to go get help. Because if I don't get help, something really, really awful is going to happen. I had that sense of, of um, I need to put my ego aside. Here's the chef talking about healthy food and talking about healing the body. And now I need to heal myself. And I, I needed to stop running from the reality that I was struggling. And I was in a very, very dark, painful place. And I needed to ask for support. And that really led me to, you know, the amazing human beings, uh, the doctors and the therapists and, and the people that I started to assemble to really go into, well, what is this depression thing all about? You know, uh, really, what, what at the core can I do 
from a scientific or pragmatic level, but also more of an esoteric and spiritual level to, to really tackle this thing. It was, it, was a, it was a scary time when I was diagnosed with clinical depression, but it was also an exciting time because, wow, I get to, I get to dive into a whole pool of, of information and research that I know nothing about. And so that was 2014. And that was really the first moment of, oh, wow, th this is a big turning point in my life and I got to do things differently. So elaborate a little bit on the kind of um, help that you got. And, and um, I know that you engaged in a, in a battery of different kinds of tests. Uh, so can you pull on that thread a tiny bit? Sure. Uh, I knew that I wanted to find a physician who had experience in sort of this, this triumvirate of things I was looking for, which was um, looking at this from a nutritional approach. I had a sense just by doing some preliminary research that maybe um, the fact that I am not eating in the way that I'm teaching other people to eat <laughs> was maybe part of it. Of a, yeah, here's all this great, healthy, plant-based, organic food that'll heal your body. And here I am on the road and, you know, doing 14 hour days on set and, you know, kind of eating like crap, to be honest. Yeah. They and say not sleeping. They say wisdom is listening to your own advice, right? <laughs> that was, that was a master class. It was like, oh man. And I, you know, I felt like such a hypocrite too. It's like, here I am teaching people how to do all this and I'm not doing it myself. Um, so in seeking out th this medical doctor, I wanted someone with a, a foundation of holistic nutrition who had a good balance of Western training and Eastern training. Mm -hmm. So I found a, a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Alan Green here in Los Angeles. And, you know, I, I, he kind he's kind of like a, 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 a sexy younger Santa Claus. You know, when I walked in, he's just like, Oh, he's a more, he's a more svelte Santa Claus. Okay. I can, and just a really warm personality, very open. And on the first meeting I thought, okay, this, this is, uh, this is the person I want to work with. And, I was very open and very transparent about what I was going through, what I was experiencing. And he said, um, well, I think what we need to do is, is a combination of tests. We need to do something called a, a Nutra eval, which was a broad spectrum sort of blood panel test of let's look at your hormone function. Let's look at your cholesterol, your vitamins, your lipids, your minerals. Like let, let's just do the whole damn battery of tests. Mm -hmm. And then let's also do uh, a urine-based uh, analysis of your neurotransmitters, which at the time, I don't know if it's the same test now, but it was called a neuroscreen. Mm -hmm. And there are other laboratories that will do this um, that what I've seen is basically they either do a urine-based ba urine analysis of your neurotransmitters, or there are some facilities now like UCLA that are actually doing sort of these modified brain scans, much more expensive than a urine urinalysis, but basically either modified brain scan or urine. I chose the urine because it was within my budget. And what we started to see when we got those test results back was a really interesting sort of collage of, oh, okay, uh, you're pretty, pretty low in all of your primary neurotransmitters. You know, we're looking at the dopamine, we're looking at serotonin, we're looking at epinephrine, norepinephrine. Um, you know, we're looking at your, your GABA, um, and he's looking at it going, okay, you know, you're, you're, 
neurotransmitter function is suboptimal. Well, okay, in a vacuum, what does that mean? You know, I, how can I aim to improve this? He said, well, let's, let's go over and look back at the mineral analysis. Let's look at your B-complex vitamins. Let's look at, um, you know, what's going on with your gut flora and what certain um, microflora you, you might be missing in your gut. And we started to assemble basically a game plan, Jeff, of um, certain nutrients or certain probiotics or microorganisms can be tied to um, specific neurotransmitter function, right? It's like, um, what can we do in terms of, say, you know, probiotics? You know, I had a stool test as well. Um, I'm going to geek out for a second. We're going to geek out a lot in this podcast. So if you're listening, get ready for massive geekdom. Here we go. Um, we know that, for example, like probiotics, this this was a huge lesson for me in working with Dr. Green because, you know, I was eating cultured vegetables and I was eating, you know, my my coconut yogurt and, and um, doing all of those things. But what I started to realize is that when you go a little bit deeper into, say, specific probiotic strains they're responsible for producing uh, specific neurotransmitters, right? So as an example, um, a probiotic like uh, um, bifidobacterium produces GABA. Um, Enterococcus and streptococcus produce serotonin, while something like bacillus uh, produces dopamine and norepinephrine, right? And we know that through looking at the um, enteric nervous system and the gut-brain connection, that more than 50% of our dopamine and 90% of our serotonin are found and produced in our gut. So, you know, you look at dopamine. Okay, cool. My dopamine was low. Well, it affects emotions and, and sensations of pleasure in the brain and serotonin, you know, the happy neurotransmitter regulates our mood and, and boosts our memory. I'm giving these as examples of like this masterclass of, uh, uh, of me needing to understand the functional benefit of specific foods and specific probiotics and what they were going to do for those neurotransmitters. Because I think for me and a lot of people, it was this sort of sweeping generalization of, well, I just need to eat more yogurt. I just need to eat more cabbage and slaw and cultured foods. But we get into the nitty gritty, we get into the weeds and we find that, oh, there are specific foods and things I need to take to boost the neurotransmitters I'm low in. It's not... It's not sort of this approach of um, throw like I, I'll yeah, go on you a, did a supply chain analysis. Yes, really right? of your neurotransmitters. Exactly. You're like, you're like serotonin is synthesized from tryptophan. Tryptophan is contained in these foods, you know, like or et cetera. We'll we'll get into that. But essentially, you took it from more of this general space of like I kind of vaguely know. That fermented foods are good and they have live bacteria and you know the gut's important to actually understanding specific strains of bacteria in your gut and what mechanistic role they play in the synthesizing or upregulating of certain neurotransmitters and this is like ugh, this is the good stuff like you were rigorous about it I think that when we are pushed up against a wall in life, proverbially speaking, um, you get, I get, one gets uh, very adamant and very excited and very forthright about pulling oneself out of, um, out of the bottom of the well. You know, I, I mean, 
this sort of metaphorical approach of the dark night of the soul, right? We look in, in sort of these spiritual practices, um, they can manifest in many ways, but, you know, me being suicidally depressed and my doctor saying, you know, based on all of the tests we've run, you know, you're a clinically depressed person. It's not a situational depression, you know, on a chemical level, you are a clinically depressed human being. That's me with my back up against the wall. And yeah. so when my back's up against the wall, it's like, well, there's only one way to go and it's moving forward. I, I can't, I can't allow myself to sink any lower. Right. And so the, the geekdom we're talking about and sort of the, these, these supply chain analysis you're talking about is I don't like to use the word hacking my body. I feel like that, that is such a, a cliche sort of offshoot of the biohacking world. There's nothing wrong with that, but I wanted to understand my body in a more intimate way. That's really, I, I think my whole lens on this, Jeff, was I need a more intimate relationship with my body and my being. Yeah. And I think once you understand in grok mechanism, the protocols become that much more obvious to adopt. Yeah. And that, that's, that's where I say when I feel like I'm catching up uh, to you. Over the last year and a half, I've had just the unbelievable opportunity to interview a lot of doctors. And as a result of that, had to read a tremendous amount of literature and primary source data and clinical analysis on all sorts of um, medical science. And I can't help but know and understand physiological mechanism. And once you understand some of that stuff, it becomes very hard to deny the particular protocols um, that are needed to optimize, you know, those mechanisms. So I want to just summarize a little bit of mm -hmm. what you said, because I think this is so important because you're very brave and upfront and vulnerable about your journey, but certainly you're not alone. I mean, uh, if you, you know, one only needs to look at rates of depression or suicide or addiction um, in our culture today to, to know that, that this is essentially an epidemic. And so if people want to follow your roadmap, uh, again, there are certain tests that you got one was a stool test of so looking at um kind of your your, your microbiome and mm -hmm. we can get into microbiome and what constitutes a healthy gut you did uh, a thorough blood panel um that we're looking at a whole wide array of biomarkers and you got data back that was opened your eyes around magnesium and vitamin D and vitamin C and omega-3s. And, you know, we can unpack all of that stuff too. I believe you also did a genetic um, analysis that showed that you, and you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but couldn't properly synthesize B9, which is, which is folate. And, you know, people have these single nucleotide polymorphisms essentially that give you certain proclivities towards certain things that can open your eyes into like, okay, well, I need to supplement or I need to eat these particular foods. So, and then you got a neurotransmitter test too. So those were really thorough and that gave you essentially a dashboard mm -hmm. 
um, into your own brain function and your own physiology. So from that place of knowledge, um, then you could start to form a game plan mm -hmm. um, to essentially you know, deal with these areas where you were deficient. So let's maybe hover around neurotransmitters for a moment because there's such a direct line between mood and particular neurotransmitters. Maybe you could just do some neuro neuroscience 101, if you don't mind, and just explain what is a neurotransmitter, and then maybe we could go into talking about some of the, the essential ones yeah. um, for brain health. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so, you know, neurotransmitters are uh, chemicals that essentially um, carry an action potential or messages um, between, you know, nerve cells in the brain. So these action potentials are basically, you know, guidances or messages that tell the body to do or not do certain things and related to our chemical responses. So uh, essentially, there's there's three categories of these neurotransmitters, these chemicals. Uh, there's uh, excitatory neurotransmitters that excite the neurons and cause them to you know, fire off and carry the message between the neurons, meaning this message from this chemical messenger is being passed along to the next cell. It's like, okay, the, ma the mailman is doing his job, okay, delivering the mail. Um, examples of excitatory neurotransmitters, glutamate, epinephrine, norepinephrine. Um, Inhibitory neurotransmitters are the second category that they, they essentially block uh, or prevent the chemical message from being passed any further to the next neuron. So uh, gamma aminobutyric acid, GABA, um, glycine, serotonin are examples of uh, inhibitory neurotransmitters. And then they're also modulatory. And these uh, neurotransmitters will uh, essentially influence the the effects of other chemical messengers. So, so that means kind of like they tweak uh, or adjust how the cells communicate at the level of the synapse. So they, they affect a larger number of neurons at the same time. And you know, people say, well, what happens to neurotransmitters after the message is delivered? Um, there's basically like when, when the neurotransmitter delivers the message to the neuron, the molecules have to be um, cleared from the synaptic synaptic cleft. So that's the space between the nerve cell and the target cell. So neurotransmitters will either fade away after they've delivered the message. That's a, a process called diffusion. They're reabsorbed and reused by the nerve cell. And that's a process called reuptake, which we'll talk about that if we touch on SSRIs mm -hmm. and the sort of dangers and concerns with SSRIs and reuptake. Um, or they're broken down by enzymes within the synapse, so um, they can't recognize or bind to the receptor cell. That's called degradation. Um, you know, there's also the interesting thing, Jeff, is like neurotransmitters, um, scientists know of, I think, about 100, and they have suspicions and theories that there are many more that are yet to be discovered. Um, so, you know, when you look at neurotransmitters, you look at um, like basically there are there are amino acid neurotransmitters meaning that they're involved in you know most of your nervous system functions that's a glutamate um, that's the most common excitatory neurotransmitter um, it's the most abundant neurotransmitter in your brain and it plays a role in cognition thinking learning um, and glutamate low glutamate levels or imbalances are associated with alzheimer's or dementia parkinson's uh, and, and also seizures gaba 
um, common inhibitory neurotransmitter, um, it, it actually regulates your brain activity so you can sleep, right? Um, it regulates anxiety, irritability, concentration, depression. You have glycine, um, which is also in your spinal cord, um, and that helps control hearing, pain transmission, metabolism. Um, really quickly, the other one, since we're going deep geeking, uh, is monoamine neurotransmitters. So um, these basically regulate consciousness, cognition, attention, and emotion. Um, so many disorders of the nervous system uh, involve abnormalities of these monoamine neurotransmitters. So many of the drugs that people take also, like SSRIs, uh, commonly affect some of these neurotransmitters. Serotonin, we've heard about this, right? The big mood one, we, everyone wants the serotonin so they can feel good. Um, but it also regulates sexuality, anxiety, appetite, pain. Um, people who have uh, serotonin imbalances can experience things like um, seasonal affective disorder, anxiety, depression, um, fibromyalgia, chronic pain. Um, there's histamine, uh, which is also uh, regulating body functions like, like wakefulness or feeding motivation. We talked about dopamine, right? It's, I want to get way into dopamine because this, th there's so many things in the world right now that are just designed to hijack our dopamine on the deepest level. Um, yeah. You talked about addiction, Jeff, you know, uh, dopamine is our reward system, right? It's pleasure. It's arousal. It's learning. It's excitement. But dopamine also helps with focus and concentration and memory, uh, mood, motivation, um, if you have imbalanced dopamine, you know, we can look at things like Parkinson's, schizophrenia, bipolar, uh, restless leg syndrome, you know, ADHD, um, epinephrine, uh, also called adrenaline, by the way, is, is what regulates your body's fight or flight response. Um, that's your body's response to fear and stress. Um, epinephrine also regulates your heart rate, your blood pressure, blood flow to the muscles. Um, too much epinephrine, if you're stressed all the time and you, you have sort of like this adrenal fatigue, you know, that can be correlated to high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease. Um, and the norepinephrine that we uh, also mentioned earlier, you know, that, that basically regulates blood pressure, heart rate, alertness, arousal, decision-making. Uh, and then lastly, you know, there are these peptide neurotransmitters, which are, you know, based on polymers or, or chains of amino acids, and that's endorphins. So we look at um, endorphins are our body's natural pain relief, right? They play a role in our perception of pain. Um, anytime we have a, an injury or something we're recovering from, that's when the endorphins come in or when we're running or working out too. That's a lot of people say that they work on their depression by basically, um, you know, going on runs or working out or doing yoga. And, and that also boosts our endorphins in our body. I could go on and on. Basically there's a hundred or more neurotransmitters and science is still figuring out exactly how they work and how they function. But I just wanted to give you sort of the core of what I've learned and understood, um, through this process and what I try and pay attention to in terms of like how I want to help regulate my mood in my body through the adaptation and sort of the regulation of these neurotransmitters. Mm, that was fantastic. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever heard an overview of neurotransmitters as succinctly put. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, yeah. yeah, because it is very confusing and and I'm not surprised that there may be hundreds that we haven't um, discovered because I was looking at like the chemical formulas for some of these and they're like C30H, 
you know, 49, 13. I mean, you've got to imagine in this quantum dance that our body is, you know, we're, we're producing all of these different kinds of molecules all the time. And there's some that we've obviously discovered that have particular associations with, you know, mood or anxiety or sexuality or appetite. But I wouldn't be surprised if there's hundreds more that we haven't um, uh, discovered. Now, maybe we can hover over serotonin for a moment just because it's it's in common parlance. And you mentioned uh, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRIs, the most common of which are like Paxil or Prozac or Zoloft. And um, these are among the most prescribed drugs in the world. Um, and uh, we can talk a little bit about how they're designed to work, but just at a higher level, serotonin is often associated with this kind of feel-good state, with calm, with serenity, with the parasympathetic nervous system, with rest and digest. Um, so talk a little bit, maybe for a moment, about serotonin, and then maybe we can get into what these drugs do. What are the downsides of taking some of these drugs? And then how one can upregulate the production of serotonin naturally and endogenously in the body? Yeah, great questions. Um, so it's funny because you you mentioned serotonin and, and uh, I feel like I've seen this trend. Um, well, two things before I get into to more of the, the weeds with what you asked, Jeff. Um, I see a lot of posts on social media now of um, like dogs bouncing around or like cute baby goats hopping. And, and you know, the, te <laughs> the text above the video is like your serotonin boost for the day. And, you know, <laughs> I, on one hand, I find that adorable and cute. And on the other hand, you know, the, the, the part of me that's very analytical and very intensely into this mental health conversation is like <laughs> a baby goat video all day long is not really going to do the lasting thing for the serotonin we need. But I just I find it to be an interesting trend that's really catching <laughs> well, fire. Yeah, well, these how this is sort of how these terms enter the common parlance uh, through baby goats on Instagram, <laughs> I guess. And then we hope that there is a, a path that goes a little deeper down the rabbit hole. Exactly. Anyway, right. Right. Um, Maybe. And if that's people's, you know, if that's people's um, thing that gets them curious. Yeah. Then, gr you know, great. Um, maybe I need to start posting baby goat videos. I don't know. I don't know, man. But you um, know, the other part of this too, and I don't know if you saw this, Jeff, in the past um, two weeks, there was a lot of uproar that was coming out about um, pharmaceutical companies who had been discovered to, um, what is the proper word I want to use, um, sort of over overemphasize the role of serotonin in depression. And a lot of the wellness community and holistic docs and, and people I'm friends with were up in arms about it of like, oh, we knew these pharmaceutical companies were manipulating the data and, and overemphasizing serotonin. And there's been a lot of pushback in the last two weeks at the time of this recording over um, people going at the pharma companies over, over serotonin. And I'll get to that when we talk about SSRIs in a second. But, you know, serotonin, yeah, it's, it's you know, it's the mood regulator, right? It is people want to feel good. Um, 
they're, they're generally chasing serotonin. You know, they, I think people confuse serotonin and dopamine a lot because they're similar in the sense, you know, dopamine is, is this pleasure, this, this achievement, this learning, this, ah, yeah, give me the good stuff. Um, serotonin is a little more like directed toward, you know, good mood, sleeping, sexuality, you know, those kind of, it's, it's much more specific in that way. And, you know, we talk about boosting serotonin. I mentioned earlier specific probiotics, um, you know, enterococcus, streptococcus are, are definitely the specific probiotics. But if we, if we look at, you know, we look at foods to boost neurotransmitters like serotonin, um, you know, we're looking at something like DHEA, uh, DHA and EPA, omega fatty acids. We're looking at microalgaes. Um, there's an incredible Ayurvedic herb called Bacopa monaneri. Um, cacao, actually. Um, we look at the interrelationship between um, PEA, phenylethylamine, and serotonin production. We look at um, things like anandamide, which is the bliss chemical that is found in cacao. These are the kind of foods that you can take and you can focus on if you want to sort of naturally encourage the body to produce more serotonin. And I want to make a distinction here too. I think I got confused in the beginning because I thought that, how do I explain this? If I were just to eat more, you know, Bacopa, DHA, EPA, cacao, et cetera, have the right kind of probiotics, that that was putting the serotonin in my body. Like this is the <laughs> serotonin source. No, no, no. It's encouraging through the micronutrients, through the um, you know bacteria and the chemicals in the foods, to encourage your body to produce more serotonin, they're not the source of serotonin; they're just directing your body to produce more of it. So I want to make that distinction. Yeah, oh yeah, ordering a bunch of two by fours to your house doesn't build it. Yes, it's <laughs> <laughs> a great analogy. <laughs> um, I'll work on it, but um, yeah, indeed, you know. If you do the supply chain analysis, um, I mean, tryptophan, for example, has been identified as a precursor to serotonin. Yes. But you also need B6 in there to make sure that the crew is actually working. Right. <laughs> actually nailing the two by fours together. Right. Um, we won't have to, we don't have to pull on that metaphor anymore. Um and so then you could do an analysis of like, well, what foods have tryptophan? Well, salmon, tuna, tofu, edamame, pumpkin seeds, this kind of thing. So take, take that for a minute. Now, here's the thing. Okay. So the thing about tryptophan is tryptophan is a very sensitive amino acid. So as I was digging into tryptophan, I'm glad you brought it up. You know, this whole sort of um, mythology in our culture around Thanksgiving yeah. where turkey is supposedly and is a high source of tryptophan. But when you take a food that has tryptophan, again, extremely sensitive amino acid, that's a building block here for serotonin, and you expose it to prolonged high temperatures, tryptophan degrades and breaks down very, very quickly. So when we think about, oh, I just need to eat a roasted turkey or, or, or a blackened salmon, you can do that, but you need to be mindful of the fact that a lot of that tryptophan is going to be degraded. That amino acid is going to break down under high heat. So if you can get tryptophan from sources that are not exposed to high temperature, you're going to get higher levels of it and your body's going to be able to assimilate it more efficiently. Okay. So that's key. Um, it is, I mean, yeah, we, we've all felt that post-Turkey collapse. <laughs> 
I mean, I haven't in the last couple of years because I've gone plant focused, but um, I certainly remember it. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because serotonin is actually the precursor for melatonin. Yes. I'm glad you brought so, that up. So, and we all have some fluency with melatonin as a, as a, a hormone that induces a state of sleepiness or grogginess. Um, and serum melatonin actually, obviously, is very important for sleep. But it, now it, it has been shown that melatonin at the mitochondrial level is actually an antioxidant. Oh, I didn't um, know this, Jeff. Yeah, and it is also an highly associated with glutathione and um, proper melatonin production at the mitochondrial level is kind of neutering free radicals that are the product of just general energy production at the mitochondrial level. So anyways, there's all this new stuff about melatonin, not just as the sleep hormone, but also as an antioxidant, which is amazing. And again, it's a part of this supply chain analysis. So if you look at serotonin and then back, keep going backwards and tryptophan, now, what about supplementation? So there's 5-HTP mm -hmm. that have become somewhat in vogue, which is 5-hydroxytryptophan. Yes. I think, right? Yes. Um, and uh, what are your feelings around supplementing directly with tryptophan in order to upregulate serotonin? Oh, I think it's a really smart idea. Um, uh, again, you know, if we're looking at sources of tryptophan, um, when we talk about, you know, you mentioned salmon, turkey, tofu, certain nuts and seeds, things like that. Um, it's always a question of how much is our body able to assimilate, you know, and, and for me, I'm a big fan of conscientious supplementation. And when I say conscientious supplementation, it goes back to if we get our blood panels tested, if we go and look at our neurotransmitter function, we get a stool test, all the things you mentioned that I did, we get that beautiful collage and a roadmap of okay, I don't need to just go to Whole Foods and go to the supplement section and put a blindfold on, proverbially speaking, and try and hit a bullseye on the dartboard because I go, God bless the people at Whole Foods, but I'm walking up to the person in, in the supplement aisle going, you know, I'm having trouble sleeping and I'm irritable and I have depression. What would you recommend? And, you know, in, in good faith, they're going to probably direct you to certain supplements that may or may not help. But again, to me, that's like putting a blindfold on and trying to hit that bullseye on a dartboard. When we have conscientious supplementation and we know the imbalances or the deficiencies in our body, we can have that laser focus where we can take a supplement like 5-HTP, or you mentioned for me through the testing, the genetic testing, I found out I had the MTHFR gene mutation. How the hell was I supposed to know going into the supplement aisle at Whole Foods, that I had a gene mutation and my body can't efficiently synthesize folate from food. So I do think conscientious and, and, and mindful supplementation is a part of a balanced wellness routine and in some cases crucial to a person's biological function. Um, I take a whole host of supplements based on my particular personal roadmap. Um, I, I also wanted to mention too... Um, you're going back to, to, to melatonin and I, I love to geek out on this stuff. So, um, I was battling insomnia for about two years during this process too. Mm. And 
it was really dialing in my sleep hygiene. And part of it was, yeah, how do we, how does, how do we encourage the body to produce more melatonin? Well, um, if we really want to get into the nitty gritty here, we look at things like, um, tart cherry juice and the compounds in tart cherry juice that encourage the body to produce melatonin, things like raw almonds, things like bananas. Um, you mentioned having healthy serotonin levels that create more melatonin. But we also look at our sleep hygiene. We're branching off from nutrition for a second. And we think about sleeping in as dark of a room as possible. You know, when we have sort of intermittent light that's peeking through the curtains or, or we're having way too much blue light and we're working on our computers and we're staring at our phones till midnight, um, these are all really giving the body a difficult time with producing melatonin because there's something about that blue light and that constant stimulation that goes into the optic nerve, goes into the brain, it's overstimulated, and the body's not producing melatonin as efficiently. So part of it is the food, but I think part of it is really dialing into let's get off our devices in two to three hours before bedtime. Let's not be bombarding our brain with this constant stimulation. And let's get those blackout shades and try and sleep in as total darkness as possible because that really helps the body produce more melatonin as well. I've talked about this on the podcast before. There's a doctor named Roger Schwelt and um, also the neuroscientist Andrew Huberman talks about this, um, about getting blue light sunlight in the morning first thing to set your circadian clock yeah um just essentially through this process that in the inferior part of your retina you have these intrinsic ganglia receptor cells that take in blue light send a signal to your suprachiasmic nucleus that's a mouthful <laughs> it sits there right in the roof of your mouth which essentially sets your circadian clock which is really just messaging your pineal gland whether or not to produce and secrete melatonin. Mm -hmm. And if you go out and get proper blue light in the morning, it says, okay, yeah, produce melatonin in about 12 hours. Right. How's that? Right. And uh, um, so that can be very, very key to your sleep hygiene in addition to, you know, everything that you said. And in, in a way, you know, I look at a lot of this around optimizing our own health as actually becoming more aware with how humans evolved and what were all the adaptive mechanisms that we built up over millions of years or hundreds of thousands of years and how culture has outpaced our own ev evolution to our own detriment. So now on-demand enter entertainment, fantastic, love it. But at nine o'clock uh, or 10 o'clock p.m., if I'm getting blue light and um, and uh, and inhibiting the release of melatonin, well, that's going to have some very negative knock-on impacts. And of course, when you don't get enough sleep, there we could we could have four podcasts just about that. <laughs> right, right. Um, but uh, you know, I'm glad that that you that you brought that up. Um, let's talk a little bit about more about gut health mm -hmm. and its relationship to like let's say serotonin serotonin but we can also digress into some other neurotransmitters but you specifically brought up a couple of bacterial strains like streptococcus and enterococcus i think it was mm -hmm. yeah um, for serotonin yeah 
that um, so these are bacteria that mm -hmm. are part of your overall microbiome or microbiota that uh, primarily are in your colon and your large intestine. Mm -hmm. um, and if we're nurturing or nourishing these bacteria properly, then they are producing these metabolites or postbiotics, some of which are very, very helpful, like butyrate, which I know has is connected to the release of serotonin. But these bacteria, I think you're saying, are actually producing serotonin itself, right? That's correct. Yeah. And and what we need to look at too is when we go and get a stool test, we can get a, again, a very comprehensive look at what is the balance or imbalance going on here in the gut. And, and mm. certainly beyond, um, these microflora, you know, there, there are other things going in on our gut that we need to also pay attention to in this conversation of not only how we're producing neurotransmitters, but are they being delivered efficiently? And beyond that, the relationship of nutrients influencing neurotransmitters, because say if you have a candida overgrowth and that's taking up a lot of space in your gut, you know, that's going to start crowding out depending on how aggressively that candida is growing. It's going to start crowding out a lot of the other beneficial bacteria. We talk about the balance here, you know, looking at, is there a candida overgrowth? Do you have thrush in the mouth? Do you have sort of these constant yeast infections, you know, there are signs of, of candida overgrowth. And one of the biggest things we need to be mindful of too, Jeff, I think in, in this conversation about gut health and the relationship between all of these intelligent creatures that live in our bodies, hundreds of billions, maybe even trillions of them that, I mean, we, we can go off here and talk about consciousness. I yeah. do believe personally that the microflora the candida, the beneficial bacteria, the not so beneficial bacteria, there's a consciousness to how these are being multiplied, how they want to literally take over the body. Absolutely. I mean, they are sensitive to their environment. Yes. So you can define consciousness across a spectrum, but anything that's sensitive to its environment is at some level conscious. Yes. And so, you know, when you have something like, um, like an invasive candida overgrowth, it does not care about the bifidus or the streptococcus or an, it, it wants to take over the world, right? And the world yeah. being your gut and your body. So I think for me, the, the point I'm getting at here is when we talk about what, what feeds the microbiome and we talked about these specific strains and what they produce, we also need to be mindful of what is getting in the way of a healthy gut. And when we think about something like a candida or these less than beneficial bacteria, well, what do a lot of them feed on? A lot of them feed on sugar. Sugar. Yeah. And it's an epidemic when we think about what the mainstream narrative around our food system is pushing. What is it pushing? It, it's pushing extremely inflammatory foods. There's a, a great book uh, called The Inflamed Mind. I can't remember the name of the doctor right now. It came up maybe about three or four years ago talking about the interrelationship between processed food, the Americanized sad diet, sugar, alcohol, you know, GMOs, dairy products, tons of meat. I mean, if we look at the category of inflammation, all of these foods create an inflammatory response in the body. And the, 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 the sort of danger here is, you know, you, you have 
sort of these cytokines that are created in the body, right? That are that are this response to inf- inflammation. And the danger is, you know, when we don't handle the inflammation in our body, um, this leads to diseases. And what I'm trying to say is when we're mindful of our sugar intake, when we're mindful of looking at our addiction to processed food, alcohol, sugar, et cetera, by addressing the inflammatory response in our body, this allows more balance and directly infla- in, 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 um, influences rather um, neurotransmitter function. But we've got to address the inflammatory stuff that we're putting in our bodies. I think it's one of the critical components of this conversation. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I interviewed Dr. Robert Lustig a few months ago. He wrote a book called Metabolical. Oh, um, cool title. Yeah, it's a great title. Um, and he was one of the first pediatricians to come out vocally on sugar. And this was 20 years ago or, mm-hmm. or so. But I think you outlined articulately this constellation of processed food, refined grains, refined sugars that essentially create dysbiosis in the gut that lead to intestinal permeability, that lead to chronic inflammation, which leads to cytokines, the overproduction of cytokines, and really kind of what I would call an agitated immune system. So an immune system that's always on alert, always going. And then you wonder, you know, you scratch your head, you're like, well, why is there such an efflorescence of autoimmune diseases? Well, totally. And what, and what is being prescribed over and over and over again? Immunosuppressants. So, I mean, even like in COVID, you looked at dexamethasone, which was a very effective um, uh, therapeutic when people got hospitalized. It's an immunosuppressant because people were having these cytokine storms because right. they're so inflamed. Right. Um, and so, uh, so, yeah, you know, talking about what we should eat is a huge part of the conversation, but as equally important is what we shouldn't eat. Exactly. And, um, and there are, I mean, I, I know you've been a, um, a uh, proponent of kind of healthy low glycemic sugar substitutes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Because having a sweet tooth is also a pre-programmed part of what it is to be human. <laughs> oh, for sure. Well, it's, it's, you know, we're driven by our urges and, and again, you know, sugar works because it lights up all those pleasure centers in the brain. (laughs) And and, and also, you know, um, you know, certain, you know, there are proponents that that are pro dairy and and not so pro dairy. I I happen to be, you know, the latter I've been plant-based for 25 years. And, um, for me, one of the reasons that I, I, I got off of dairy, since we're talking about addictive things here, um, you know, dairy products light up the exact same parts of your brain as heroin does. There are compounds in, in, in dairy products that are called, um, oh God, uh, I'm losing it here. It's, it's an, um, uh, casomorphines, casomorphines, literally, if you look at what heroin does to the brain and casomorphines. Now, why is that? Why do casomorphines exist? Casomorphines exist so that the tiny mammalian creature is chemically compelled to keep sucking the milk to grow. Now, for adult humans, we don't need casomorphines, okay? But the point is, is, is yes, 
sugar, dairy, all of these things are, are, are designed to be addictive. The reason that I like sugar substitutes, the reason that I adopted a non-dairy diet years ago was because I'm addicted to these things. Like I, I had to literally admit, and truly, like I, I, am ad- I am addicted to sugar, I'm addicted to cheese. And when I've coached people and I've, I've gone through and, and done you know, nutrition coaching with people, it's a very, food addiction is a very real thing. And there are many components to it. There's the chemical part of it, knowing that there are specific compounds that light up those pleasure centers in the brain. But then there's the emotional side to food addiction, which maybe we can touch on too, because I've had some pretty interesting experiences. But the sugar substitutes, I'll take it back to your question. I'm a big fan because they're not addicting like regular cane sugar is. So I'm a big fan of things like monk fruit, organic monk fruit, which is made from the Lohan Guo. It's uh, native to Asia. Does not spike or raise your blood sugar or your glycemic index. Um, Things like stevia. Now, some people don't like stevia because it's got a little bit of a sharp sort of uh, bitter aftertaste. And then there are other things that you look at like um, sugar alcohols, uh, and that would be things like um, xylitol or erythritol. The danger with those is um, some people, if you eat too much xylitol or erythritol, um, it can have a laxative effect, which is not what you want after eating a pineapple upside down cake. You don't want to be run into the bathroom afterward. Um, but I'm a big fan, Jeff, just because I, I think we collectively as humans need to address our sugar addiction and all the the really deleterious effects of it. But the good news is there are these other, you know, creations out there that can keep our blood sugar in check. And the other thing that I love too, we're talking about blood sugar issues. Um, nopal cactus. You can either eat raw or cooked nopal cactus, or you can get nopal cactus powder. And that's a powerful blood sugar regulator, as is cinnamon. Organic cinnamon is a great blood sugar regulator as well. Yeah. So interesting. I did read about cinnamon. I did not know about your nopal cactus. Mm -hmm. But as you can see, and for those of you watching this on YouTube, I wear a continuous glucose monitor here on my tricep. Um, and this, um, connects to an app and it's been very, very interesting to monitor moment by moment. I won't say moment by moment cause I'm not, um, neurotic about it, mm-hmm. but, um, but I could monitor moment to moment. What are the different foods that spike my glucose levels mm-hmm. and how do I create a more uh, a landscape of rolling hills in my serum blood glucose levels versus these kind of mountainous spikes right and it's been um it's been fascinating because when i started wearing this 4 or 5 months ago you know i was eating a a healthy diet um i'm certainly aware of 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 everything i think one should be eating But uh, as I put this on and started to look at my glucose levels, I was essentially running pre-diabetic levels. Wow, Jeff. And, um, and, you know, now, you know, we hear about these statistics. I mean, half of America is pre-diabetic and another, you know, 10 to 15% is diabetic. Um, And I was like, wow, you know, why are my running levels you know, 110 to 120 milligrams per deciliter, which is more or less pre-diabetic, and then having these spikes, you know, sometimes up to like 200 milligrams per deciliter. And it really, again, you know, helped me 
develop a more intimate relationship with my food and my body around uh, this notion of bioindividualism, which I know that you talk about eloquently. But, you know, what spikes my blood glucose might be a little bit different than what might spike yours. Now, there's definitely commonalities. If we, if I had a donut and you had a donut, we'd probably have similar uh, responses. Although, you know, you may be producing insulin at a, at a more um, effective clip. But regardless, it was a great window uh, into my own physiology and into my own metabolism. And as I started to then refine my diet around the data that I was getting back, I'm now, you know, 70s, 80s, very, very healthy blood glucose levels. And I've almost reignited my metabolism. Mm. I mean, I lost 45 pounds. Now, that's connected to a whole variety of different things. And I wouldn't suggest that anyone goes out, everyone goes out and loses 45 pounds. But it's I essentially, through a combination of tweaking my diet and intermittent fasting, which is something we could also touch on, um, I essentially reignited my metabolism, my ability to process food and create energy, such that at this juncture, I can really, I'm not depriving myself in any way, or at least I don't, I don't feel deprivation. Um, but I am healthier and more energetic and more focused than I've ever been. And, you know, in some ways that's, uh, in connection with just having more data, uh, yeah. about, about my body. So anyways, I, th I thought it was interesting, um, you know, stevia and monk fruit that these, that there are sweet tasting compounds out there that do not spike your blood glucose levels. So that's yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah and, and the cool thing is, you know, as a as a chef and someone who likes to infuse creativity and and, and artistry, um, it's exciting to me that we have so many innovative options now for um, people who are struggling, say, with, you know, gluten intolerance or allergic to dairy or don't want to do sugar. You know, back in the day, you know, catering to clients who had all of these things was very challenging. And now, um, through a lot of innovation and, and product releases, I'm excited because uh, I feel like the playground is wide open to address people who have specific dietary concerns. I don't want to use restrictions because um, restriction to me feels like very confining. Um, but it's exciting to me that, that, that these options exist. And the other thing too that I want to say is um, you know, you talk about bioindividualism and you, you wearing this glucose monitor and it, it informing you, um, every, every body is different. And, you know, for me, as an example, um, my body tends to handle things like white rice or basmati rice pretty well. But for someone like you, I don't know if it's the case if you monitor, but if you eat something that's like, a, 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 you know, white rice, basmati rice, a, um, a, a few slices of bread, that might send you through the roof. You nailed it, actually. It does. Yeah. So I've yeah. basically cut those out. Yeah. I mean, I'm not fundamentalist about it. I will receive alms, <laughs> you know, if I'm at someone's house and, and they've made, uh, you know, a basmati dish or something. Right. But on a regular basis, yeah, it, these were things that were spiking me and 
you know, I've just eliminated them. I'm curious, um, because when we talk about sugar, a lot of people will assume that um, it means we're throwing fruit under the bus completely to eliminate fruit altogether. And, you know, one thing that I've noticed is my body responds very differently to a hybridized fruit sugar, like a date or a banana, which are heavily hybridized foods, right? The bananas we know now as an example of a fruit sugar are nothing like the native bananas that grow in the wild. I mean, we've hybridized these to death. As a result, those hybridized sugars tend to spike our blood sugar levels in a different way than a low glycemic fruit, say like dark berries, which we love dark berries because they're lower in sugar, but they also contain antioxidants. They also contain a lot of phytonutrients, which we know that if you eat purple, blue, orange, red, you're getting different spectrum of phytonutrients that also help to heal and reduce oxidative stress in the body. So when when we talk about sugar, I just wanted to make a point, Jeff, that we're not saying don't eat don't eat fruit. Just be mindful of, and you can look this up anywhere, of sort of what the glycemic indices of these fruit are, because fruit is very beneficial to the human body. Absolutely. And I might just add to that point, don't process your food. And I'm not talking about industrial processing that's happening at some uh, you know, factory somewhere far away. I'm talking about processing even in your own kitchen. So peeling an apple is processing your food. And when mm. you peel an apple, you lose most of the quercetin and you lose almost all of the fiber. And so fiber plays such a huge role in the absorption of macronutrients and by extension, glucose levels. So you could eat an apple with the, you know, without peeling it with the skin on and you will be eating a lot of uh, soluble fiber that essentially will create sort of a lattice work in your small intestine. It's kind of like a gel mm-hmm. that slows down the absorption of, well, in, in, in the, in the case of an apple, mostly fructose, but, but slows down the absorption of sugars. And so, you'll see maybe a little bit of a, of a rise in your blood glucose levels. And I've done this with blueberries and apples and, and whatnot. Um, but as soon as you start to process it, it changes. So if you, even if you dry your fruit, and some dried fruit is, is excellent, and I certainly love the taste, but you're concentrating the sugar mm-hmm. or you know, if you're peeling it and then you know, creating applesauce and then, of course, industrial processing where they're just basically adding a ton of sugar. That's like the worst. Um, but I think, you know, your point is well taken. Generally, fruit in its raw whole form is actually good for your blood glucose long term and helps to upregulate your insulin sensitivity, et cetera. And like you said, those dark purples and reds, I mean, they're so beautiful, like right now going to the farmer's market and getting these blackberries that are basically like the size of the palm of my hand. (laughs) You can eat like two of them. Um, The polyphenols and all the phytonutrients and antioxidants in these are are something to be celebrated for sure. Yeah. And I'm glad you touched on this because I think eating however you choose to eat, you know, I, I'm, um, I'm not a fan of labels per se. I mean, I'll, I'll throw out, you know, 
it just convenient, you know, I think you said plant focused, you know, I say plant based or vegan, tomato, tomato. I mean, it's however we want to represent ourselves in the world, however one wants to eat and nourish oneself. I love the point you made, Jeff, about, you know, whole, unprocessed, not tortured, not put through a chemical process. Um, there is something about if one has the ability or the space or the land to grow one's own food, raise one own, one's own crops, or, you know, I was, I was telling you before we recorded, I was in Hawaii for almost the entire month of July, and there was something that was so healing about literally walking the land there and having fruits and vegetables growing everywhere. I mean, literally picking a papaya off of the tree and eating it 10 seconds after I picked it or having uh, my friends growing uh, arugula and, and, and kale and healing herbs and, and making a salad out of everything in the garden. We didn't do this that long ago. I mean, you think about the victory gardens of World War II and how everyone in the U.S. was encouraged to for food security to grow our own food. I think that there's a return to nature that is a part of this conversation where when we can eat as locally as possible or even have a relationship to growing our own food, there's a certain energetic exchange that happens. I'm getting a little esoteric here, but there is just something about how you feel after you create a salad from food you have grown or picked fruit off of your own tree. It is a different feeling after you finish that meal. It's an undeniable feeling of vitality, verve, effervescence, just this. I, I'm a big proponent of getting back to nature. And I think that for, for many of us who live in these dense metropolises, um, you know, there, there's a, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but there's a reason why in, you know, New York, LA, San Francisco, London, there's yoga studios and breathwork studios and, and, and places to, to, you know, do your meditation practice and all these organic restaurants, because I think that there's a part of our encoding genetically as humans, we crave nature. We want to be, we are nature. And this return to healing, this return to wholeness, our communion and our relationship with nature cannot be denied. So as much as we talk about supplements and, and monk fruit and, and all the things we're touching on, the practice of communing with nature has to be a part of this conversation about mood and mental health. Yeah, I mean, there are studies that, are showing uh, by some friends who run um, Doug, which is Denver Urban Gardens. They've made, I think, 200 um, community gardens in the greater Denver area. And um, now they're just getting data back on um, levels of stress and anxiety and depression among people that before these gardens came into their community and now after where maybe they're out there three or four times a week with their hands in the dirt, but also not just communing with nature, but communing with other people mm. in their neighborhoods and, uh, and being able to enjoy the, that socio genomic upgrade <laughs> that you get, um, just from that human, you know, interaction, which seems, you know, increasingly rare, uh, in this day and age of, of Instagram 
friends instead of real ones. Um, right, right. You know, I, I want to just pull on one of the ideas that you brought up, which I don't believe is a, a digression at all. Now, there's this this John Maynard Keynes quote that I've been gravitating to towards lately, which is, it is easier to ship recipes than cakes and biscuits. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, globalism, you know, has not adhered to that particular adage. Um, and, I, you know, in pondering it, I started to study the supply chain of, uh, of like the textile industry of like a dress that you might buy at Zara for 1999 and working backwards all the way to, you know, a cotton field in Oklahoma and then to a gin and then to the creation of yarn and then to the shipping of that to some Southeast Asian country so it can get sewn and cut and to ship to China so it can get a button put on it, shipped back across to the United States to go into a distribution center, getting on the back of a truck then to go to an H&M or a Zara so you can buy it for $19.99, wear it three times and then throw it away. Yeah. And, you know, we have this relationship with the material world that we deem it completely disposable because it is not unique and it is not relational. We don't have any relationship with it. But when you talk about eating a salad that you grew or that at the very least you bought the ingredients from someone that you met at the farmer's market, well, that completely changes the geometry of the relationship that you have with the material world, where then it becomes unique. You know, you'd never throw away a dress that your grandmother made, you know, because it's unique. There's not anyone else like it. It is completely relational. And we can also have a unique and relational relationship with our food. And it completely changes the experience. It's not just like a big gobble fest. Right, right. <laughs> and, you know, I've heard you talk about this before, but we are not just what we eat. We are actually a product of the nutrients that we can absorb. Right. And, you know, this kind of bridges into mindful eating, if you will. Uh, and maybe, you know, you could spend a moment talking about breath work or meditation or all of the different modalities that we can um, adopt to essentially get our physiology in the place to best digest and metabolize food. Yeah. There was a, a phrase that I remember my grandma relaying to me, my grandma Rose, who was you know, one of my original culinary inspirations that I mentioned along with my mom. And her philosophy was to never make food when you're angry or you're upset or you're carrying resentment towards someone because her philosophy was the, the quality of that energetic imprint is going to go into the food. You know, as a kid, I'm like, okay, being grandma, that's crazy. But as we go on and we study 
the sort of quantum realm and how our energy, our intention, our state of being, there's literal electrical energy coming off of our bodies. We look at Qigong, we, you know, we're, we're producers of energy, you know, as, as Brendan likes to say, we're power plants, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly generating energy. And to me, I think about my state of being if I'm making food for myself or others, or when I'm sitting down to actually take in that nutrition. And it's all too easy now with these magic boxes, these holding up my phone now, these, these, oh, well, I got, I got, I got to, you know, get the latest news or, or look how my stocks are doing. How's my Bitcoin doing? And we're eating these meals with a phone in one hand and a fork in the other hand. And I can't tell you how many times, Jeff, that I would sit down and make a meal and I'm present through the creation process, but when I sit down to actually eat the meal, I can't even remember what it tasted like. Right. I can't remember what, you know, I'll look down and the bowl's empty and I have this moment finally of presence of going, oh shit, I didn't even taste it. I just mindlessly consumed this meal without even enjoying it. I spent all this time making it. And I gave my focus and my attention to the iPhone and the news report rather than the actual meal. And so what, what I endeavor to practice as often as I can is trying to be in as good a state of being as possible while I'm preparing the food, because I do believe the energy goes into it. And also when I'm sitting down to enjoy it, whether that's a prayer or a moment of gratitude or simply taking an intentional breath of being with it and just giving thanks for that meal you know it true thanks like i love that you brought up the supply chain because i'm thinking about the farmer that i met earlier in the day that i bought this lettuce from hmm. or perhaps the farmer i didn't meet that i bought these radishes or these artichokes from and what their what is their life like and thank you for doing the work that I am not willing to or able to do to provide me with this nourishment. So I think taking a moment of real presence. And the other thing too, that's interesting. If you're really present at the moment of that first bite, it's exquisite. Yeah. That first bite of food, if you're actually fully present with it, is magical. Yeah. So let's, we can geek out on this for a minute. So if you're looking at your phone, and we know that the attention economy is geared to use scandal and sensationalism and hyperbole and deploy that information such that it leverages your human negativity bias, so mm -hmm. fear and outrage that spike certain neurotransmitters and hormones for the express purposes of uh, getting as many views, likes, engagement as possible, often to sell ads, but sometimes just to garner influence. So that is how it's designed. So if essentially, if you are eating while ingesting that kind of information, what is happening to you at a physiological level? Well you're being put into a state of fight or flight or sympathetic overload or amygdala hijack, however you want to describe it, mm -hmm. where your body then produces certain kinds of hormones and neurotransmitters, some of which you 
referenced before, but like epinephrine and adrenaline and cortisol, et cetera. And what that is doing is that it's taking the blood that is normally uh, focused in a parasympathetic state around digestion and taking it away from your gut and putting it towards your extremities, to your arms and your legs, and increasing breath rate and increasing heart rate because you think you're being attacked by a saber-toothed tiger. Right, when you're just reading a news report on your iPhone. Right. Right. And then you're eating food, and you might be eating the most marvelous food in the world, but if you're in that state, you are not optimized to properly digest and get the most uh, nutrient absorption from that food if you are in this other state. That's right. So, you know, this is why uh, it, it's just so important to pay attention. Um, and, and also, it's, almost, it's so much more pleasurable, as you said, too, to take that moment, however you get there, whether that's through a prayer or through conscious breath work, because the breath, for example, is your conduit into your subconscious. Mm-hmm. And so you can leverage the breath to move yourself from a sympathetic state back into a parasympathetic state by essentially tricking your nervous system mm-hmm. through certain breath patterns. So, you know, there's tons of them out there, but you could just do a simple box breathing of four by four by four by four, or, you know, Andrew Weil has, I think it's the four, eight, nine, or, yep. you know, where you're holding it for a certain but these are all kinds of breath patterns that move you back into this rest and digest. Now, there's other breath patterns like Wim Hof's that actually move you into a sympathetic state <laughs> where you want the epinephrine, right? Right. And you're getting it. So just being conscious of how to move yourself between the, the, the two branches of the autonomic nervous system can give you a lot of mechanistic control than which uh, which has everything to do with how you digest your food. Right, and I think this brings up two interesting things, which is perhaps uh, a commonly held belief that we are um, slaves to our state of being. It is what it is. I, I'm in a fury. I'm, I'm, you know, you know, people think that uh, they don't have the kind of control we're talking about to implement certain practices to intentionally regulate our nervous system through breathing. And, you know, the other point I wanted to make too is um, there's a counterproductive aspect to the the scenario, scenario you were describing of, um, I call it either doom scrolling or disaster baiting, mm-hmm. where we're, we're addicted to the cortisol, we're addicted to the adrenaline. Cortisol and adrenaline can also be a thing that we are addicted to. And so when we are doom scrolling, um, we're sort of looking for that next fix. And the problem with this though, in the scenario you described, we're eating this healthy meal. We've prepared it with so much intention. Then we're doom scrolling on our phone. Our cortisol level goes up and there's been some Japanese studies I referenced in uh, in my book, Eternity. They did a study of uh, Japanese women who had elevated cortisol and adrenaline levels and found that it was correlated to um, weight gain. And so the the thing is people can be putting all this time and attention into like, I'm, I'm going to the gym and I'm, I'm eating all this healthy food and I'm having my salad every day. 
yet their cortisol levels are constantly elevated and they wonder why they can't lose the excess weight they want to lose. Now, I'm not trying to sound like weight loss is a, a very simplistic thing. There are certainly many other factors related to that conversation. But if your cortisol is always being just boom through the roof and you wonder why you can't lose excess weight, it's because you're not letting yeah. that hormone level get balanced. Absolutely. Well, high chronic cortisol rates are correlated with high blood glucose levels. Mm -hmm. And when you have high blood glucose chronically, yep. your insulin can only usher so much glucose into your cells for energy production. So when it's there in the bloodstream, it only has a few other options. Like some of it can get stored as glycogen in the liver. Um, some of it, you know, becomes kind of part of these glycoproteins, which are called advanced glycation end products, which creates inflammation in your circulatory system. But the rest of it is just stored as triglycer as adipose tissue. Right. You know, often kind of visceral fat. You know, this is where I stored, you know, I had kind of like these muffin tops, you know, for years. And, I, you know, honestly, I... um I uh, I look to kind of chronic high cortisol levels um, for having that kind of little band of visceral fat um, because, you know, I was constantly stressed and drinking, you know, a tremendous amount of coffee when I'm stressed, et cetera. Like, um, and it was, uh, and even though my diet was good and I was going to the gym, you know, I was like, hmm, why do I have all this excess visceral fat, you know, cortisol levels? Chronic uh, stress. Digging chronic stress yeah so um i want to just touch on dopamine because we, we sort of skirted over it earlier and i want to get your thoughts on it because for me it's kind of this jekyll jekyll and hyde neurotransmitter um and it's a hormone i believe mm -hmm. so can you unpack dopamine uh for, for, in all of its positive and, and dubious role yeah so um we talk about i i call social media and and iphones the dopamine dispenser because it um it's directly related to your body's reward system you know it's it's pleasure it's achievement it's arousal it's learning it's it's um you know we 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 feel good about ourselves you know dopamine's like the sexy neurotransmitter and you know if we if we if we look at dopamine you know, it's easy to get addicted to sources of dopamine. I mean, we could talk about actual drugs that are, um, you know, like cocaine, amphetamines, methamphetamines, you know, they act directly on, on the dopamine system. So we talk about the nature of addiction. Um, a lot of the, the sort of drugs and whether that's a digital drug or a physical drug are directly related to hijacking our dopamine. Um, mm -hmm. now you know, before I get into sort of my rant about social media and digital technology, I do want to say that, you know, without relying on cocaine and methamphetamines, you know, there are ways to naturally boost dopamine, you know, two, two of the things that I like to use, um, and I'll get into sort of my, my dopamine protocol or my dopamine detox in a second. Um, one is a, a Ayurvedic, uh, food called macuna prurians. It's also known as the velvet bean. And it's something that they've been using in Ayurvedic medicine for you know, thousands of years. But the West, I think in like maybe the last 10 years, it's kind of come into vogue here. And 
the interesting thing about Macuna prurians, Jeff, uh, first from a culinary perspective, um, you can get it in powder form. And it's very kind of smoky and earthy and and a little bit dirty, kind of like a shilajit. It's just it's very earthy and and not easily consumable like a teaspoon or a tablespoon of it. But you can incorporate it into say like a hot chocolate, a sugar-free hot chocolate, sugar-free, dairy-free hot chocolate. Okay. Goes great in there. The cool thing about Macuna is there's been studies. Um, you talk about PubMed, there's a few on there. There's one in particular. Uh, from 2014, doctors Galani and Rana, um, they did studies on the antidepressant effects of Macuna and how it affects dopamine. Well, there's an amino acid called L-DOPA in Macuna prurians that has been shown to you know, affect the non-androgenic and serotogenic systems and, and that it can literally have an effect on not only depression and boosting our dopamine, but there's another cool thing about Macuna, which they look at um, neurologically degenerative conditions like Parkinson's. And they've done some cool research with Macuna on um, affecting the brain and, and Parkinson's patients. So for anyone who wants to look that up, it's M-U-C-U-N-A, Macuna. Um, the other thing about dopamine that I like to use to naturally boost it um, is a herb called saffron. Um, saffron helps to affect not only dopamine, but also serotonin. Saffron is cool because, um, if you've ever seen a saffron flower, it's this gorgeous, like purple lilac flower. It's, um, it's a crocus flower and it's got these red, these beautiful crimson threads that grow out of the center of the flower. Um, it has been used dating back to the Egyptian times. I think maybe 1600 BC or so might be the first evidence of its usage. But when you harvest this saffron, um, it's incredibly labor intensive. It's one of the most expensive foods in the world. Uh, right now, I think a pound of it, depending on the grade, can go between $500 and $5,000 for a pound of saffron. But the cool thing is these compounds, these mood elevating compounds, um, there was a, a, a study in the Journal of Behavioral and Brain Science that found that the extracts of saffron directly increase dopamine in the brain. The downside is it's expensive as hell. And what you're seeing now in um, coming into vogue is, uh, you know how matcha lattes got big like five or seven years ago and matcha was the thing because everyone's like, oh, well, you need you need L-theanine because if your cognition and your memory and your brain function's low, you got to get this amino acid L-theanine and matcha's the way to do it. Well, now kind of what's coming into vogue are these saffron lattes for people to boost their dopamine, but there is a, they're prohibitively expensive. So I feel like, I don't know what it's going to take to like alter the market for saffron, but there's been some cool research about it affecting dopamine levels. And, and I think it's delicious. It's just bloody expensive. Yeah. Maybe Starbucks is involved in the baby godification of of saffron now. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, I, you know, as, as I was looking at the precursors of dopamine, mm -hmm. similarly uh, to how we discussed uh, tryptophan as a precursor of serotonin, um, one of the amino acids that I came across was tyrosine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, 
and uh, and tyrosine gets converted to L-dopa, which is essentially eventually synthesized into dopamine. Um, and some people I, I do think are supplementing with tyrosine. It is found, um, I think the word tyros actually in Greek means cheese. Um, <laughs> so I think it is must be in cheese. Um, but I, I think that uh, it's also found in, um, in, in other kinds of fish um, as well. And I'm sure there's, there, there's other uh, high-protein foods where you can find tyrosine. Um, but it is uh, your body also endogenously makes tyrosine. It's not an essential amino acid the way tryptophan is. So tryptophan, you actually have to get it from your diet. Right. Um, I think your body actually creates tyrosine out of other amino acids uh, naturally because your body is incredible. Yeah. Um, but um, saffron is interesting. In fact, I interviewed Dr. Daniel Amen last week. Oh, I, I love Dr. Amen. And he's all about saffron all day. Yep. Um, what about some of the adaptogens and dopamine like uh, rhodiola and, and ashwagandha? Any yeah. connection there? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, these these adaptogens have the ability to, you know, not only regulate certain aspects of the endocrine system, but we talked about those hormones, those stress hormones, you know, ashwagandha is one of the best things that you can take in terms of being under periods of high, spre- high stress, um, helping to, you know, regulate those stress hormones we were talking about. But yeah, you, you brought up two of the big ones. And we, we go back to this ancient wisdom of Ayurveda. We've talked about Bacopa for serotonin. We've talked about Macuna for dopamine. You brought up Rhodiola, Ashwagandha, these adaptogens have the intelligence encoded in them to help regulate our body's systems. So it's interesting to me, and I know this is a, a tenet of why you do what you do at Commune, but it's, it's taking what's old and making it new again. You know, they've been using these things in traditional Chinese medicine, or, or, you know, if we look at boosting the immune system, we looked at TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, we look at reishi mushroom, we look at, you want to talk about brain function, lion's mane is yeah. a, an incredible mushroom in terms of neurological function, repairing synapses. Uh, lion's mane is like my number one mushroom right now. And you're actually going out into stores now and you're seeing them sell these giant, I mean, huge caps of lion's mane. And one thing I like to do, Jeff, is actually smash the lion's mane, like flatten it, and then I'll grill it like a steak. I'll, I'll marinate it in like a barbecue sauce. And you can actually slice the lion's mane mushroom, these huge, huge caps of it, and, uh, and turn it into like fajitas or just eat it like you would a regular steak. So if you're looking for like mushrooms that help the brain, um, lion's mane is like my number one right now. I love it. I love cooking with it. I love experimenting with it. It's meaty. It's dense. It's really good. Yeah. Is there a connection between lion's mane and BDNF? I don't know what BDNF is. Yeah. BDNF, I believe, is brain-derived neurotropic factor. Um, We'll have to do uh, part two. We will. On BDNF. Um, Because more and more, I I hear about it um, in conjunction with brain health and with neuroplasticity and learning. So, yeah, I, I I looked it up in real time as I am apt to do, there you go. and uh, there is on our favorite PubMed a analysis of the neurotropic uh, isodin from the fruiting bodies mm-hmm. of lion's mane, 
And it talks about how it increases the protein expression of NGF, uh, the BDNF, and synaptophysin in C2 N2A cells, uh, which apparently helps with memory improvement. So yeah, you just turned me on to a whole new new phrase that I did not know about my beautiful friend, which is one reason why I like doing these conversations with you. Yeah, well, this is why we do them, to learn from each other and hopefully spawn new uh, areas of curiosity. Um, I want to uh, kind of in, in our remaining time, pull on a thread that you, you brought up that I think is pertinent to your life and, and where you're going now. Mm. And it's sort of the rediscovery of things that are old and true to address, you know, problems that appear to be new. Mm-hmm. Sounded a little Dr. Seuss there, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, you know we we consistently come across these new trends like yoga and meditation and the Paleolithic diet and regenerative agriculture and organic food and ashwagandha and rhodiola and saffrodine. These things are fucking old. Yeah, <laughs> they're old. Um, and, you know, we rediscover them in the West and we commercialize them as as we're apt to do. Um, but in many ways, you know, I think that we are hungry, um, literally, for things that are old and adaptive. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and in some ways, you know, I think we get to these places in our own lives where we feel the calling, that pull to reconnect with things that are old and true. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring that up in relation to kind of where you are kind of on your journey right now. Mm. For me... Um growing up in uh, Detroit, Michigan. Uh, The cool thing about Detroit was these these great lakes that surrounds that beautiful state and all the woods nearby. So even though I grew up in the city, uh, I had access to, you know, spelunking these interesting little adventures as a child and I think as I, as I gone on in, as I've gone on in my life, um, there was this deep drive to, you know, be in the city and move to Chicago and move to New York City and move to SF and spend summers in Europe and, you know, LA now for almost 17 years. And um, I think what I'm realizing is that I need to be with nature all of the time. You know, this... I think back on my time in New York and in LA and it was always like, Oh, you got to go upstate. You got to get out of the city, you know, just, just go upstate and, and reconnect. And here in LA, it's we well, go to Griffith park or, you know, go to Malibu or, but the kind of thing that I'm feeling called to do right now is this immersion in nature, where is just this deep reconnection with, as I mentioned before, growing food, um, getting into, 
this communion that I remember as a child that I think on some level I have been missing and craving through being a city dweller for 45 years of my life. And I was in Hawaii for almost all of July, as I'd mentioned. And um, I was actually there working with my therapist doing um, somatic healing, somatic therapy, and also plant medicine with him. So what I'm about to say, you know, I want to color it by by saying that I am a huge proponent of things like psilocybin and ayahuasca, LSD, ketamine, MDMA. I think that these substances, when used with the right intention and the right aim, can be tremendous assists in our healing process as human beings. So this plant medicine experience that I've been having for a decade in different forms with the backdrop of being in the ocean every day and walking down the road in Hawaii and picking a papaya and grabbing a coconut and finding, you know, wild mustard and arugula by the side of the road. And it confirmed what I think I've known on a soul level for a while, which is I have had my fill of the great metropolises of the earth. I know what city life is like. It has its beauty and its benefits, but my soul needs to be with nature every day, not just going on a hike once a week, not just going to, you know, point doom on the week. Like I want to be in it, you know, forgive the phrase balls deep, you know, put my dick in the dirt every day and just be, you know, be in it, be in it. And, um, I'm excited about this because there's, there, there's, I know that this move and this desire, this soul calling to be with nature is a part of my healing process, but I think it's also a part of my creative process. When I was there, like I, the channel was just open. It was just open. All of these ideas for a new book were coming through and ideas for songs were coming through. And I'm, I'm just filling the pages of my journal every day. So this, this, symbiotic relationship that humans have with nature, I think is something that as we go on in an increasingly digitalized society, that more and more humans are going to be seeking out. I have a feeling that when we talk about community, as we did before, and the healing that happens in a community, the healing that happens in uh, an environment where we're growing our own food, we're reconnecting to nature, I think people are going to be seeking that out en masse because there's a, I think there's a growing discontent with materialism. I think there's a growing discontent with bigger, better, more, faster, this, this hungry ghost that we're constantly chasing to try and fill ourselves up. And I think through my own mental health, my own healing journey, I've realized that, you know, I don't need that much to be happy. Like the, the less stuff that I have and the less complicated my life is, Jeff, the better I feel. So to have a simple life, to have a life where I'm surrounded by loving, supportive community, where we're growing food, we're sharing food, we're, we're doing all of these things, like that's the next chapter of my life. And I'm very clear that that's the next chapter of my life. And so I've already started taking like bags of shit down to the Goodwill Center. I'm like right. calling friends like, do you need this extra computer? Do you need this beanbag? Because I've got this beanbag. I'm not taking this beanbag. And the, the, the sort of shedding of superfluous things, not only material things, but superfluous ideas that I have to be in LA to make it and I have to be in LA to be a success and I have to force my soul to be in an environment it doesn't want to be in. Like I'm just, 
I'm shedding a lot right now, a, a lot of concepts, a lot of belief systems that no longer serve me. And it feels really good to let go. Yeah. It feels good. Yeah. They, yeah. It said that knowledge is adding things, but wisdom is giving things away. Um, and, you know, we've talked a lot about uh, neurotransmitters and physiology, how the body works, mechanisms. And, um, and as I'm listening to you talk about the future that you plotted for yourself, I'm, uh, it brings up this question of like, well, what does nature do? And uh, what is the foundational intelligence of it? And when I think of human physiology, for example, in the context of many of the things that we've discussed, yeah, your body produces free radicals, a reactive oxygen species, and it also produces antioxidants. And guess what? When your body is hypoglycemic, it produces glucagon. And when it's hyperglycemic, it produces the counterpart called insulin. And there's your autonomic nervous system. And sometimes you're in your parasympathetic state and you've got serotonin flowing. And sometimes you're in your sympathetic state and you've got adrenaline or epinephrine or cortisol flowing. And what nature does is that it creates an asymmetrical kind of sensitive order between the yin and the yang of life. Mm or the yin and the yang of your own physical body or organism. And to be in nature's course, to step into the river and be in its current and refine the skill to apply the rudder just right so you're leveraging its power. I mean, that is Taoism. But that might be the greatest fulfillment of self-realization. Because uh, certainly the easiest way to tire and drown is to consistently swim upstream. And mm. uh, in many ways, I think the more that we can understand and align with the foundational intelligence of nature, the healthier and the happier and the more fulfilled we're going to be. And it sounds like, um, you know, you're tacking uh, with that wind right now. I am. And, uh, you know, there's something about clean air, clean water, fresh food, good loving community. You know, I, I think back to Dan Butner's work with the Blue Zones mm. and those foundational principles of those centenarians that he interviewed in those those areas around the world. and you see a lot of these basic principles of daily movement, communing with nature, eating food that's local, mostly plants, having a spiritual practice, having a loving, supportive community. Um, these, are, these are foundational elements that in this increasingly technocratic world, I think many humans are losing sight of. And the reality is in human history, we're not that far removed from this. I mean, the Industrial Revolution is what, 120, 130-ish years? These principles of how humanity used to live are only several generations ago. We're not talking thousands of years. 
So this return, it's interesting to describe it. It's like, um, I thought I would live and die in the city. Hmm. And life has this beautiful way of surprising us with these unexpected twists and turns in our in our script, in our movie that we're living in. And um, yeah, the idea of living simply, it's not just sort of an intellectual concept anymore. Um, I have an embodied experience of it and I want more of it. So you could say I'm addicted to simplicity. I'm getting addicted to simplicity, Jeff. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've been probing this idea of how one engineers blue zones in their own place. Ooh. Um, because there are, you know, it's so easy to become overwhelmed and numb or paralyzed in the face of the enormity of the world's problems. Like, um, you know, my wife has a lot of eco anxiety, for example. Um, and, it, you know, you, you can become numb. But I think that there are small little things that you can do every day that really bend the arc of your existence. And it is all these things around how do I actually engineer a blue zone in my own life? You know, That's how do cool. I maximize movement, restoration, purpose, community, being around the table with people, um, having engaged conversation, minimizing distraction, um, all of these things that you can, that you do actually have quite a bit of agency over moment to moment. Um, anyways, I can't wait for you to get established there and begin accepting visitors because I'll put my name on the list. <laughs> 100%. And that's, you know, that was kind of a fear of mine of, oh, I'm leaving, you know, nearly 17 years of living in California and the community and the people here and sort of the, you know, anxiety around that. But to your point, it just means that um, I get to fill those cabins on on my future property with loving people and allow them a respite from from city life. So that is part of the vision, for sure. Nice. Well, thank you, Jason. I love being with you, and certainly to be continued because I I know I will want to check in in a few months' time and and see how it's going. So. Would love that, Jeff. It's always good to see you, brother. Thanks for the invitation. All right. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Jason Robel. To go deeper into the connection between mental health and nutrition, check out Jason's commune course, Good Mood Food which dives deep into the nutritional building blocks of key neurotransmitters. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you know how much effort we put into this show's creation, and we really do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. This is not one of those shows where I prattle on for 15 minutes about sponsors and ads. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way is to subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 100 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. You can check it out for 14 days for free at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd love to thank the folks that make this show possible week after week, including Jacob Laub, 
Megan Stone, Violet Augustine, Alexa Peppermint, Ruby Foster, Emma Fred, Silvana Alcala, and Ryan Tillotson. That's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I am here for you. <laughs>